Hello, beautiful. This is Reverend Jennifer Hadley, and the recording you're about to listen to is part of the 2011 Living a Course in Miracles teleclass. Our intention in offering this class is to give you clear tools and practices that you can use to align with love every day in every area of your life. No one can do your healing for you. You must decide to choose love in every moment to the very best of your ability. Remember, miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. Intend to live a miraculous life of love and share the benefits of your healing and your expansion with everyone because you're one with them. Please pause the recording before the class starts and write down your intention in listening to the class. Partner up with your own higher Holy Spirit self. And please go to jenniferhadley.com for more tools and practical loving support every day. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy the class. So I'm going to invite everyone to, let's center in. I'm going to invite you to place your hand on your heart and take a breath of gratitude with me and Paul Sheely. So grateful right now to partner up with the higher Holy Spirit self. So grateful that we're saying yes to walking the talk and being aligned with love in every aspect of our being. Remembering that love is all that there is and it is our true identity to walk the talk. So grateful and so thankful that right here and right now we can consciously release any sense of separation and step into an awareness of this life of love that is calling us to align more closely and more fully We share the benefits of our healing and our expansion with everyone because we're one with them. In grace and gratitude, we let it be. And so it is. Amen. Amen, amen. So, Paul Sheely, I'm welcoming you. You're a dear friend of mine, and you're one of my very highly esteemed teachers. I have found that working with you over the years has been very inspiring, very motivating to me, and I'm really excited and pleased to be able to share you with all my friends from around the world in Living a Course in Miracles, so welcome. I appreciate that. It's a joy for me to be shared. (laughs) And, you know, from the first time I met you, Paul, I got so excited because I saw in you someone truly who does walk the talk and who's ignited and excited by life and the opportunities that we have in every moment to shine our natural brilliance, to shine our loving heart, and to share with others. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Paul, one of the things that Paul does is he teaches the teachers how to teach. And that's one of the things that I have studied with Paul. And he helps us to access our natural brilliance, our inner beauty, and to really shine it forth and share it. And A Course in Miracles 
is Paul's not a, a Course in Miracles teacher or uh, as far as I know. Have you been studying the Course at all? Yes, I have. Yeah, oh, when great. it first came out, I got into it right away. Just absolutely love it. Oh, great. I didn't know that. See, I didn't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> and so Course in Miracles is all about unwinding every part of our uh, attachment to something other than our true identity. And it really is all about walking the talk. And this is one of the things that's so challenging for spiritual seekers, to align fully with the teaching. So many spiritual students and seekers, they know the teachings backwards and forwards, but they haven't gone that extra step to really live them. And so I wonder, Paul, if you can... This is a starting point. What what do you know about what happens when somebody does that? They study the teaching, but they don't live it. Well, we have to go back to the the way the human mind is designed. We grow up when we come into this world. We come in utterly helpless, utterly incapable of taking care of ourselves. You know, we have to be fed, we have to be nurtured. And it's really easy, and if there is a a principle called original sin, it's that belief that suddenly we're separated from the divine Mm -hmm. when we come in through the birth experience. And so it's not uncommon for us to develop this protector part of us that's trying to keep us safe and try to get us everything that we need we call it ego and as long as we're alive we have it with us and what happens is as we grow as we develop we realize that the mental model that we grew up in isn't all there is there are a bunch of blind spots that have been built into the way we orient to the world and so we try our best. We do what we're told, and sometimes it doesn't work out the way we we were led to believe it would. So we we have an opportunity when we try to do something and it doesn't work. We have an opportunity to either decide, hmm, the way I, would, I went about this didn't get me the result I wanted. I wonder what other ways I might get it. Or we could decide I'm a failure at this. And very often at an emotional level, we choose to say we're not enough of some kind. In the language of hypnotism, which I learned about when I was 19 years old, I took over the oldest established hypnosis practice in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul when I was just 21 years old. I I came to understand the how this deeper part of the human mind and the psyche operates. And hypnosis isn't about putting people into trance. It's about understanding the phenomenon of trance, phenomenon of trance, so that we can awaken from it, awaken from those self-defeating, those limiting beliefs, trances that make us think that we're something less than a spiritual being having a fully human experience. So what we have that that goes on is we have an espoused theory. That's the thing that we talk about, that we learn Mm -hmm. about. And then we have a theory in use. And so the separation between 
our espoused theory and our theory in use is that gap. The gap between walking or talk and really talking the talk. So the espoused theory is talking the talk and the biggest challenge with most adult learners is when they hear something that they have heard before, they say, oh yeah, I already know that. Mm-hmm. When they say that I know it, does it mean that they embody it? And that distinction between knowing something cognitively and fully embodying it is what I'm looking to get into in our dialogue tonight. Yes, thank you. You know, uh, last week we had David Hoffmeister, who's a, a, a really beautiful teacher of Course in Miracles and very much a mystical being. And our topic last night was on uh, last week was on healing, and we were particularly exploring the topic of all healing is at the level of the mind. Mm-hmm. What does that really mean? Because so often I will say that in a room full of people who've been studying science of mind, Course in Miracles new thought for 10, 15, 20 years. And when I say all healing is at the level of the mind, everybody nods their heads and says, oh, yes, I know that. And then about 30 seconds later they say, now, what what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so that's exactly what you're talking about there. Is We think we know it because we've heard it before, but that yeah. doesn't mean we know it. Yeah, so if we think about getting from here to where we're going, from mm-hmm. from the status quo to some perfect future, essentially what we need to do is we can't take our models from the past, our history, and figure out how to get from here to there. What we have to do is we have to drop in and contact source. We have to make contact with the emerging future. The emerging future is always showing up in the now, in the present moment right here and now. And if we have a goal in mind, oftentimes what we try to do is we try to figure out how that's going to happen. But the goal has come to us from an inspired place. For example, when I was shortly after I was initiated into the Himalayan tradition of yoga science and philosophy, I had an insight of a company that I was supposed to build and a type of audio recording that I would make. And I saw the whole thing. It, was, it landed on me, seriously. It just landed in my consciousness. And what was interesting is that I didn't produce the first commercially available recording, which became known as Paraliminals. I didn't produce my first one for 12 years. And mm-hmm. all that while, the technology was coming online, the ability to do the thing that I had actually imagined, the studying that it would take for me to do it, the the building of the business that would allow me to distribute it, all of that took some time to happen. And mm-hmm. when it all came done, I mean, it became the largest grossing product line for the company that I started called Learning Strategies Corporation, it's interesting that every year it tops the list of the most successful products that we have. And when you think about it, it wasn't even my idea. 
it came to me. So the way that I'm going to make it happen isn't by getting behind it and pushing, but by dropping in with an open mind, an open heart, and an open will. And these are the things that I'd like to focus on in terms of what does it take to really embody something. An open mind is what we need to release judgment. Judgment is the guardian of an open mind. So Course in Miracles talks a lot about the process of judging. Then we come to the open heart, and the guardian of an open heart is cynicism. Uh, you may have heard the phrase, Jennifer, that the cynic is a broken-hearted idealist. And when you think about that, you have an ideal, you have the perfect future in your consciousness. You come into the world embodying it. You're here to express it. It's yours to express mm -hmm. in this world. It's your personal genius to exemplify and live in alignment with. And through our teaching, through, through what we learn in life, we learn to shut that down people telling us it's not going to be possible or whatever it might be. And so what replaces the open heart is a cynic that then criticizes other people's ideas as well. So if we have an open mind and we have an open heart that's filled with love, that's inspired, that's breathed into, then we can drop into that kind of abdominal place where that source of our, our power is. It's also the source of our greatest fear, and this is the open will, and the guardian of the open will is fear. So, of course, again, of course, in miracles, it's probably the number one thing that it looks at is that obstacle to really trusting and surrendering into our atonement, our atonement, is the presence of that fear of really letting go. And isn't it true that the last thing a person wants to do is surrender, surrender <laughs> their will? Mm -hmm. And and that's where we have to go. So with an open mind that's free of judgment, with an open heart that's filled with love and gratitude and kindness, we drop into this place of the open will where we can trust and surrender that our actions are for a higher good beyond what we can even imagine. And now from this place, we can be truly present to source itself, which is trying to express itself through us as us. And that's what the evolutionary impulse is. It is, we are the universe in a human form with hands, with arms, with legs, with feet, with a mouth, with a brain, with eyes. And we need to constantly be asking, not what it is that we're seeing, but really to for whom these eyes are seeing what they're seeing. And when we recognize that consciousness, that presence, that power that we truly are and, and align ourselves with it, that's when all things are possible. Healing, success, beautiful relationships, you know, all of it. It all comes as we align ourselves fully with it. So... I just I what I know is some of the course of miracles students are saying, well, but we're not really here. Mhm. Mm that this world is an illusion, it's a projection of our mind. Mhm. Mm 
So now, to me, what you're saying is not in conflict with that at all. No, no, not yeah. not at all. And you know, let me explain or address why I know that that's so. Because <laughs> if we go to the, the Taoist philosophy, all there is is the Tao. That's the one. And then the Tao is separated into the two, which is the yin and yang, mm-hmm. the bipolar opposites. That's where mind actually holds the universe together with judgment. So it's mm-hmm. this, not that, that, not this. So the judging mind comes in, consciousness comes in, and it's through this beautiful act of judgment that everything else, the Tao becomes you know, the two become three and the three becomes everything from there on, that all that we see is me. All that you see around you is your perfect creation. The way that's held in place is to believe that it's not us. That it's not us. So for the first part of our lives, what we would call phase one, is we really play out this experience of we're a victim of the world that we see around us. And it's important to go through that phase. Again, we're, we manifested this human experience to have the fully human experience, which is what? It's the feeling experience. So we're creating this as our perfect creation. At some point, the soul self gets recognized where we realize, oop, the jig is up. <laughs> we're not just the victim of the world we see there's something else going on here and that's when the soul self really guides us to the enlightened awareness that we really truly are bringing all of this into our experience for the purpose of having this experience and so I love what you're saying here the open mind the open heart the open will so the the way to align is through what you're saying is release the judgment, release the cynicism, and surrender to divine will. Yeah, to let go of the fear and surrender Mm -hmm. to the, the fact that you're always perfectly cared for. And this is what I would call the way to fully embody all of the teachings. When we come to any teaching with this kind of attitude, we can become fully present to the teaching and why it has shown up. You know, why is it that you're hearing our voices right now? And everything that we're saying is exactly what you already know to be true. There's nothing that's being said to you that you don't already know. You're hearing it, you're recognizing it, you know that it's so. Why is that? Because you wrote this play, you direct the play, you produce the play, you star in the play, and you wrote Jennifer and Paul into the play at exactly this time so that you could hear these words and remind you of what you already know to be so. So we're not born into this world empty. We're born full. In the ancient Greek traditions, they had something called the cult of genius. The word genius comes from a a deeper root from the Middle East, the concept of the jinn or the genie. And what it was known as was a spiritual presence that's born into your world with you 
when you come in. Now, in my model of the world, my psychospiritual and neurocognitive studies, I've come to understand this genius capacity is the non-conscious, this tremendous genius potential, the true soul self that you are is always here with you. It's never separate from you. It's always here. And it's offline from what we walk around with, which is this trained conscious mind, which is very robotic in nature, very mechanistic, very Newtonian. And it's this genius ability is right here, ready to step in at any moment to assist us in taking the next step that we determine for ourselves. So unless, what you're saying is unless we are more interested in viewing what we're experiencing now and projecting now through the lens of our history, if we're dragging our history with us, then we're going to be more interested in that, in the meaning we've made of the past and seeing the present moment's opportunities uh, through that, through the lens darkly is what it says in The Course of Miracles, than what you called at the beginning the um, uh, emerging future, or the, the possibility that's available right now to be inspired. Right. Well, the universe is expanding. It's always unfolding. And if we're not expanding and unfolding with it, we're contracting and we're holding it down. And that contraction, where do we usually feel it? We feel Mm -hmm. it in our chest, in our gut. We're trying to hold on. And it's important to understand that our neurophysiology has an immune system very similar to the physical body's immune system. And there's three components to this immune system. It's called, actually, there's a book written about it called Immunity to Change. When you start your awakening process, when you start recognizing, oh, my gosh, there's there's more here than I've been sold up until now, Holy smokes, you know, your your soul self starts stepping in, starts putting teachers in front of you and books in front of you. And every time you read something, you just light up. You're thinking, wow, this is so cool. Well, why don't we embody it fully? Because this immunity to change is in place, and there's three components to it. Okay, the first component to the immune system is this this knowledge uh this knowing system which organizes our reality and think about it as a, a a reality management system essentially and this knowing system that organizes reality says when something new comes in that's unlike anything we've known before we should fight against it we should disbelieve it That's why the existence of our subconscious mind, of these vast potentials of the non-conscious. I mean, what teacher in school ever told you to access the greater ranges of your non-conscious mind in order to accomplish what you wanted in school? That's what I've been teaching teachers to teach is, you know, to start using that. And just, you know, Jennifer, you know this, but if you look down at your feet, and you see the amount of space your feet cover of the floor, imagine that's the entire database of your conscious mind, everything that was that was 
taught to you everything that you store in memory, all of it, it's, that's your conscious database. And that little circle is in the center of a circle that's 11 miles across, and that's the database of your non-conscious mind. Ten billion to one more vast than your conscious mind. You're standing in the middle of a resource that is spectacular, and it's offline from your conscious mind. So your knowing system, your organizing system for your reality is pretty minuscule compared to what you really have within you. Now, the second strand of the rope for our immunity to change is the feeling system. And that manages anxiety. So every time you encounter something that makes you feel a little anxious or fearful, guess what? It's your ego trying to protect the status quo. And so it steps in and says, ooh, back up. You know, this is dangerous. You don't want to go here. And what's it fighting for? Survival. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. So then there's one more strand to this three-part rope, and it's the change prevention system. And this is what thwarts challenging aspirations, the possibility that, oh, my gosh, this this idea for a new line of audio recordings that could change the world. Instead of telling people how to live, they actually bring you to resources that already exist in you. You learn to tap into them and and transfer those out into the world. I call them paraliminals. And two million paraliminal recordings later in 185 countries, this idea that was birthed through me came up against all kinds of change prevention Mm-hmm. Lots of re- I remember I told the idea to my father. He said, "Cassette tapes? You can't make any money selling cassette tapes." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, and that was in the day when cassette tapes were available. Right. So if you look at this immunity to change, the knowing system, the feeling system, the change prevention system, these are the three parts: the open mind, the open heart, the open will. It's the same thing. So the the knowing system closes down. It, it, these three components are binding you to the present, to the status quo, trying to keep things the same. So even while you're saying, oh, I'm totally into change, I'm ready to change my life, what you're up against instantaneously is this entire immune system that's actually going to try to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, isn't that interesting that it's it's in the the physiology there because what A Course in Miracles teaches, as you know, and we have a lot of people who enter this uh, these classes who are not Course in Miracles students, but Course in Miracles talks about the body being the hero of the dream and that the ego is represented by the body. And so when we are in, say, fight or flight mode, when we're in this uh, physical reaction mode, then we're identified with the ego. That's what's happening. Yes. Yes, and that's very much a natural mechanism of the Mm -hmm. physical nature of our present existence. As a spiritual being having the human experience, we had to manifest the physical body to have this feeling state. 
There aren't mm-hmm. feelings, per se, in the spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. So to come in and manifest this physical reality, we had to create a universe in which simultaneously existing opposites could occur. That's why yin-yang is such such a flag over this planet. You see, it's there's dark, there's light. In a wave, there's a trough, and there's the peak. In the human uh, physiology, the the nervous system has a sympathetic and parasympathetic. We've got uh, a personal. We've got musculature that's extensor and flexor. We've got opposites mm-hmm. simultaneously working to hold us in this physical experience. Now, if I take a tennis ball and throw it up in the air. The moment when it's no longer traveling up and no longer traveling down, it's just a split second. It's in perfect balance right then. But it's the most unstable state in the universe. Literally everything fights against that level of stability. So we'll have that experience when meditating, for example, where we have a glimpse of this magnificent balance how everything is working it's all light and it's all magnificent and then we come back to our quote-unquote reality out here and say wow hmm, what was that (laughs) i just got a glimpse of something (laughs) i want more of that Mm -hmm. so in the himalayan yoga tradition the prayer that i say before meditation is the asatoma prayer asatoma sadagamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya, Mrityurma Amritam Gamaya. And the approximate translation is, lead me from the unreal to the real. Lead me from darkness to light. Lead me from mortality to immortality. And it's that traveling, this descending into the physical realm and this travel through the physical back to the spiritual realm is what we've chosen to come in for. And uh, as an opening, as a beginning place for meditation, don't you get how that's so perfect? Exactly. I call it uh, partnering up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, partnering with the higher Holy Spirit self with divine will mm-hmm. and surrendering. Exactly. Sometimes, you know, spiritual seekers and students will get to that place where they're like, oh, my God, I have to surrender again. And <laughs> what I I learned is it's never not about surrender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always about surrender. Surrender yeah. again every day, every day. Well, what, think what, about, wouldn't you want to surrender? Yeah, think about the breath itself. How could you live if you didn't surrender the breath you just inhaled? <laughs> that there is, is no, great. I love is, that. Yeah, it, this was the first experience of a transcendent reality that I had was a meditation that was just focused on my breath. And I realized everything about the physical universe was embodied in the movement of the breath. So... You know, we've got the exhale, we've got the completely exhaled, then we've got the beginning of the inhale, and then we've got the fully inhaled. So there's four components to the breath. 
those four components are in a cycle just like a waveform is. Now, if you take a waveform, a sine wave, you know, it's, mm-hmm. you do a, draw a line here, and then there's a, a, a bump up on top of the line, and there's a bump down below the line. Now, if you turn those so that they are on top of each other, you've got a perfect circle. So many spiritual traditions, native traditions, are always focused around the circle of life. And the inhale and exhale flowing in one continuous cycle of breath is that same never-ending cycle, the seasons of the year. The fall is the exhale. The winter is the completely exhaled. Now, there's a little bit of a panic here. You know, are we going to survive the winter? So what do we do? We have all these festivals of light in the darkest time when, you know, we're farthest away from being able to grow our food. You know, we're just, we're trusting and surrendering completely. That's why it's such a spiritual time of introspection. And then the inhale becomes the springtime. And the fully inhaled, the joy and the ease of summer. It's God's running around in the body. And then the harvest when we exhale again. So this this perfect cycle is repeated over and over in everything that we see. And I think it's important also to, I'd like to bring in this idea of what then is our spiritual practice. Because in order to embody something, in order to have an espoused theory become the theory in use in order to really get it into your body, there needs to be a spiritual practice that you're involved in. So if it's meditation, if it's prayer, if it's a course in miracles which guides you in meditation and prayer and affirmation, fantastic, Mm -hmm. absolutely essential. I I feel I keep getting the nudge to go back to the beginning in a sense here, Paul. So sometimes the way I start the class is I ask the teacher to explain to us what is the motivation. So what is the the highest motivation that we can cognize in order to get ourselves to walk the talk and really make the commitment to walk the talk. What is the highest motivation that you're aware of? Yeah, that's, it's actually kind of an interesting koan almost. It's a, sort of the unanswerable. In other words, how do you do your being? And one of the traps that we're facing in this modern world is that we're really trained by, our modern mind is trained to do in order to be. Right. And the the the, um, the paradox of it is, as soon as we say, well, what is the practice that allows us to stop doing and just be? <laughs> you see, uh, we're we're trapped in. It, it's like the uh, be spontaneous paradox. You know, as soon as I say to you, Jennifer, now I want you to be spontaneous. Well, it's impossible to obey that order. <laughs> Because now I'm thinking about it, so right. So, so you know, I'd like to back off of that question just enough to give a little bit of perspective. And I don't know if you've ever heard of a book called The Zen, Zen and the Art of Archery. 
as Eugene Harrigal in 1948 wrote this. And I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Okay, well, what do you... The, the point he was making is the Western mind trying to embody Eastern tradition. Okay, so the archers in the West differ from the archers in the East. In the West, the focus is on the target and hitting the bullseye. Mm-hmm. In the East, the focus is on drawing the bow and the release of the arrow. Hmm. So where the arrow goes is secondary. And uh, so I, I think the answer to your question is exactly in this. So in the West, you know, traditional spiritual practices focus on maintaining an active prayer life. And generally, you know, in terms of the, the Protestant churches that I grew up in, they're performing righteous acts you know, doing good deeds in the world. It's really focused on the doing, right? In the mm-hmm. East, prayers are more of rituals that really prepare the spiritual aspirant for the deeper practice of an inward silence. And it's in that deep silence that we really come to understand who we are as spiritual beings and our relationship with the divine. So, Here's something that Herigl wrote. I'll, I'll quote this. Okay. The archer ceases to be conscious of himself as the one who is engaged in hitting the bullseye, which confronts him. The state of unconscious is realized only when, completely empty and rid of the self, he becomes one with the perfecting of his technical skill Though there is in it something of a quite different order which cannot be attained by any progressive study of the art. Now, if you talk to anybody who's made their, their art in the world, mm-hmm. their spiritual contemplative, contemplative practice, you'll discover that there is a necessity to practice the craft. And the art, the true expression of the art, comes when you let go of the doing of it and you become one with the doer of it, where the object and the subject cease to be separated. And that's that transition from subject to object of both being the same, where who you are and and what you do can't be seen as separate. They're actually immersed in one another. That's why you can actually learn a tremendous amount on the spiritual path by taking a look at the actions that you've been involved in and realizing that these are actually ways in which you're holding your reality in place. So I, I like to draw four columns. The first column is my commitment. So my commitment is to meditating every day and praying and blah, 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 blah. The second column is what am I doing or not doing that prevents that commitment from taking place? And when I list those, I realize, wow, there's a lot of things that I do. I get too busy and, you know, I... I've got so much going on and every drama that comes by, whatever. I can't. I don't have time for this. 
And the third column, then, is what competing commitment must be in place. So you start to look at your own behavior and say, well, I say that this is what I'm committed to, but I must be committed to something other than that because that's how I'm behaving. So we begin to make a study of our competing commitments and then underlying that, that's this is where the real gold lies. This is where we start doing shadow work, where we start recognizing, whoa, there's a hidden assumption in here. And a good one, for example, many the, uh, people in the Catholic faith grew up as, as Catholics, came to understand that there's a, a presupposition that as long as you're in a physical body, you will be sinful and unworthy to stand in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, there's this deeper feeling that if I perfect my physical human experience, I'm closer to my own death. So the fear mm-hmm. of death actually shows up as a big assumption. Whoa, if, if, I, if I literally come to know God, I'll be dead. And so, yeah. you know, there could be a lot of deeper hidden assumptions, and, and this becomes something of a spiritual practice, and certainly A Course in Miracles allows you to walk around in your life and see where these bigger assumptions have taken hold of your consciousness and how you can slowly, gently, over the course of a year, unravel many of those competing commitments and big assumptions by testing them and, and proving that they don't hold anymore. So let me ask you a question. So let's say the commitment is to meditate for 20 minutes a day. Yeah. And what what gets in the way is I worked really late last night. I need that extra 20 minutes to sleep this morning, something like that. And then what what would be a competing commitment? Well, a competing commitment is to uh, having fun and taking taking time off of your doing. You know, so I want to sleep in instead of meditate. So what's the big assumption there? That's that's an interesting one. If I meditate, I'm not resting. I'm working. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'd be better off sleeping. And and the truth is, most spiritual masters that I know would much rather meditate than sleep. That they get yeah, more value from their meditation than they do from their sleep. Right. So you begin to see that there is a, a bigger lifestyle choice. Well, it's okay to stay up drinking late and you know, stressing myself all day long and then falling a bed completely exhausted and getting up groggy and saying, uh, I'm too tired to meditate, I'll just fall asleep while I'm sitting there anyway. So it really becomes when you when you begin to think of it, there is there are areas in your life where you can actually bring your meditation into your everyday experience. So in the program that I developed with Swami Veda Bharati, you learn to meditate in three minutes. And I there are there are traffic signals that I have to wait three minutes at, <laughs> which means that I could be having a profoundly deep meditative experience. Somebody says, well, you know, w- 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 what if you disappear and 
somebody behind you needs to go through the light, well, believe me, there's always somebody behind you who's going to honk and tell you to come out of your meditation. You don't exactly. have to worry about that. Yeah, but you, especially you hear in what I'm, Yeah, exactly. So you hear what I'm saying about where is your practice? Is it in this artificial, set-aside little room with a Buddha in front of you? Or is it your prayer without ceasing? Yeah. Literally, your breath is your constant reminder to connect with the now. You cannot have the felt experience of your breath in your nostrils without coming into the here and now. The moment that you feel mm-hmm. your breath flowing in your nostrils, you're having a here and now experience. And guess what? All of your resources as a mature human being are in the here and now. They're not in the past and they're not in the future. So to really embody your practice is to bring it to each thought. It's to bring it to an observation of each breath. It's to be mindfully aware whatever happens, whether you're on it or not on it, when you're mindful of that fact, you're doing your spiritual practice. Yes. I remember a teacher of I remember a teacher of mine would giggle when he came to the West and he saw people setting their kitchen timer for twenty minutes so that they could <laughs> meditate. And he looked at that and said, "Why would you set a timer for meditation? It's like we're trained that it's a doing instead of a being. This is, meditation is a time for being." Well, see, this this is one of the major issues that most spiritual seekers, I, I think, we go through this process, if you will, uh, or this this gateway where we leave behind the ego mind controlling our spiritual practice. So, it very often, it's very very common to see spiritual students and seekers who are. Their entire spiritual practice is driven by the ego. Mm-hmm. So they're they're good if they do their spiritual practice. They're bad if they don't. <laughs> and their spiritual practice is something they're checking off. They're doing the timer thing. They are developing the discipline. They're developing the ability to have a commitment. And you know, it's it's part of the. The walk of of grad, then you graduate from that to where the the place is. Because I teach this to students who are ministerial students, practitioner students, where they I say to them, your, your meditation is going to move from the place of you have to glue your butt to the chair in order to make yourself do it. To you get to the point where it's like being in bed with your lover and it's warm and you're naked and it's so yummy and the last thing in the world you want to do is get up from there. Mm. So you you go from one extreme to the other, but the only way to get there from one extreme to the other is to sit there and yeah. be committed. Yes, the archer has to draw the bow and release the arrow and so there is the craft part of that. Mm-hmm. There is the doing that is the nature of it, for sure. And it's so valuable. I, I love what you're saying, Paul, because it's so valuable for folks to just begin to recognize where is the ego driving your spiritual practice because that's not walking the talk, which doesn't mean you should be ashamed or that you're a lowly sinner, you're doing it wrong. It's just 
becoming more and more aware of what is the thought in your mind about your spiritual practice. Yeah. And, you know, you've, you may have heard this idea that the word spin is an archery term for missing the mark or going astray. Hmm. And there is a connection to an original Aramaic word, katatha, or the Greek hamartia, which literally means to fall short or miss. And that's true in a spiritual in an archery context, and it really also is true in a spiritual context. So there may be practices that you're engaging in that fall short of really moving you toward where you're going. And I remember someone putting it into perspective this way. Imagine the mind is like an elephant. You know, when it's young, you put a big heavy chain on its leg, and it pulls and pulls and pulls against it, and eventually it gives up. And then you could put just a, a light rope on it, and, you know, eventually a gigantic elephant would have no trouble breaking the rope, but it's been trained. And the daily practice of a meditative practice is like forging another link on that chain. And the day that you miss your practice, you've broken the chain so there are ways to actually motivate the practice a daily ritual and ritual is something that really uh, our deep nervous system resonates with it's the, the oldest part of our brain what's called the reptilian complex it really needs that it's the it's the pq it's the physical intelligence it's that place where in the deep part of our gut we feel fear or trust and surrender. So when we do something over and over and over again, this ritualistic way of doing our practice, we really find a deeper comfort that allows us to let go in a much fuller way. And so I just don't want to lose the thread of you've got the four columns. What's in column number four? Well, we've got the the first column is what what am I committed to? Mm-hmm. The second column is what am I doing or not doing that prevents it? The third column is what are my competing commitments? The fourth column is what's the big assumption underneath that that's holding the competing commitment in place. And then the, there's actually a fifth column. And this is in the book called Immunity to Change, by the way. Uh, oh, okay. the, fifth, the fifth column is what steps, what first steps can I take to challenge the big assumption to show that it really no longer holds sway over the results in my life. So let's let's walk I think this is really helpful. So what is let's walk this through for people. So let's say we we make the commitment to walk the talk, which means we are going to do our best to be loving and compassionate 
with ourselves and with everyone we meet, we're going to recognize our brothers and sisters are not separate from us, just to make it pure course and miracle. So that's a big commitment. And already I can hear people going, ay, 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 ay. Because it is. It's huge, you know. Well, and, uh, especially if you put it as an always and forever, you know, that's that kind of universal quantifier makes it a little bit challenging. That's why I say to the best of our ability. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> because we're we're learning. We're learning. Yeah. You know, and I always give the analogy of the toddler who's falling down and, and getting hurt and whacking their head and things like that. Uh they they don't give up because they're really interested in walking. That's so that's right. the thing is we we'll fall down, we'll bang our head, we'll have to make apologies and we have to forgive ourselves, and we have to surrender. Um, but we're learning, so that's just part of the learning. It doesn't mean we're really doing something wrong. We're in a constant correction. Mm-hmm. So if that's the commitment, if the commitment is to walk our talk, which means to be loving and compassionate, non-judgmental and forgiving to the best of our ability in every moment, then what prevents that? The obstacles are. The yeah, what are you so-called... doing or not doing that prevents the commitment from being fully realized? Yeah, it could right. be getting pissed off at somebody who's getting in your way, right? Yeah, your being outcomes resentful. are more important than your relationships. Holding a grudge. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, trying to control and manipulate other people. Yeah, trying to control and predict the future. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Sure. So these are things that prevent us from aligning with our heart and walking the talk and keeping that commitment to walk the talk. Then a competing commitment? So a competing commitment, you begin to explore it and you'll find there are certain possibilities here so don't worry about getting the one right answer right Mm -hmm. Uh, but a competing commitment could be taking care of number one taking care of yourself Uh, especially when you feel like you're running short of time energy and money and somebody else is getting in your way of taking getting, getting your own needs met right i gotta pay my bills yeah yeah I need to make sure that things work out for me. I've got to, I've got to do well before I can do good for others. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah. So how can I, how can I serve others from an empty well? You know, if I'm not, if my needs aren't getting taken care of. Right. So, so then let's look at what's the big assumption. So the big assumption is that there's not enough love to go around. Yeah, or that being loving and compassionate is going to cost me something. Yeah, the more I give, the less I have. Right. That's so, a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, of course, in miracles teaches the opposite of that, that love is in an infinite supply and the more you give it, the more you're filled up by it. Mm-hmm. And so, so when you start to test that big assumption with some new actions, 
then you re- start to realize, oh my gosh, that's right. <laughs> Course in Miracles was right all along here. <laughs> yeah, Course in Miracles tells us to have, you have to share it, you have to give it. Yeah. But in the Newtonian world, in our modern culture, no, you, you know, you've got to, got to make sure that you're going to be able to get what you want. Otherwise, you're going to give it all away and you're going to have nothing. How are you going to survive? The ego will always tell us that the good is limited. Yeah. Yeah. Even though the breath, even though the breath and the beating of the heart indicate something else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There is always the next breath that's right there filling me up. And wow, I always have been taken care of. Wow, I have made it all this way. You know, I have survived. So. That's the idea of you begin to make little tests. That's why the design of A Course in Miracles is so brilliant, is because every day is gently testing the big assumptions that hold our current reality in place in order to show that there is another reality here that's always been in operation that is ready to serve us ready to fill us up in a way we've never imagined before. Mm-hmm. In a way oh. we could have never imagined. Never imagined. So we've got about uh, seven minutes or so left from uh, to have the one-hour class from when we started. I'd like to... I'm not sure what else you would like to say, but there are a couple things I'd like to go back to that you brought up that I think are really intriguing. So you talked about personal genius. Is there anyone that doesn't have personal genius? Are there any just true through and through knuckleheads? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, I haven't encountered any yet. <laughs> the <clears throat> the way that Buckminster Fuller talked about it, he's a famous inventor and author, speaker. He said, we're all born genius, and out of 10,000 born in the world, 9,999 will be systematically de-geniused by the time they reach fifth grade. And it's by well-intentioned and well-meaning adults that prevent us from exploring the natural world. So, yeah, we we can really grow up living in a box. We could be prevented from exploring the world enough to discover that we have a mind that's way beyond the conscious, that is full of resources beyond our wildest imagination. And it's all free for us to tap into at any moment in time. It's just that, you know, if you look at the knowledge and skill acquisition curve of a preschooler, you know, it's just off the charts rising. And as soon as they go to school, it starts to plateau and drop off catastrophically. Because we're forced to sit up straight, pay attention, listen. You know, and I'll put something meaningless on the board and test you on it. And so you better, you better make sure you pass this test. So a lot of stress, a lot of distrust. Quit talking. That's cheating. You know, up until going to school, talking with others was the only way you could learn. You know, so, right. so we're we've 
gotten it backwards in society quite a lot, but we tend to marginalize and exclude what's not part of the culture and power. And the Course in Miracles didn't grow out of the culture and power. It came out of a spiritual inspiration Mm -hmm. that was really designed to help awaken humanity from a trance that it's been in. So if someone feels, you know, there there have been many people I've met in my life who've been told repeatedly by their parent uh, that they're stupid and called yeah. stupid. That becomes their nickname. And sure. So there I are mean, many, the, most, yeah. the most brilliant people, the icons of genius, of entrepreneurship, of business, were generally failures in school. You know, Stephen Jobs was a great example. He this really came to the front when he passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy was a complete slop. Abraham Lincoln was the same way. Einstein was a knucklehead. He couldn't pass math. They thought he was retarded. Mm. You know, so there's, yeah, by the definition of the culture and power, remember the culture and power is always going to determine what's normal. So if you're not normal, according to my definition of the culture and power, then you're marginalized and excluded. You become the other, the one who's not smart, the one who is, is sorry about that, the one who's not going to be able to be given the benefits of the society, the culture and power. So if someone feels that they have been in agreement with this idea that they're not smart and they've been in agreement for a long time, how do they bust loose from that? What's the first step? Yeah, the, the way to awaken from that particular trance is to recognize the truth about your own neurological potential. And that's where courses like the ones that I've, design, like uh, the Genius Code or the Paraliminal Recording Personal Genius or Self-Esteem Supercharger, any of these that begin to put you in touch with these this 11 miles of resource when you think all you're standing on is this one little square foot underneath you, you know? So mm-hmm. it, when you begin to tap into these beyond conscious resources, it awakens you to the fact that what the others have been telling you isn't necessarily so. Mm -hmm. And unless you begin questioning those messages, if you don't subject them to inquiry, then you're bound to prove that they're true. That's what mind does. It finds evidence for the truth of what you think. Exactly, exactly. We never look for evidence to support the the real the truth, truth, right. super truth. Uh but when we believe something that's not true, we're constantly hunting for evidence to support it. Yeah, there's no peace in that, of course, but that's what mind is designed to do. So inquiry, you know, this kind of self-reflective inquiry, which A Course in Miracles really offers, is the way to discover the truth about who you are. Well, and another thought is, since we're all one, if something is true for one uh, on a certain level, if one person could be literally 
stupid or not have that genius potential, then it, it must be true for others, it, not just one. I, I mean, it, in other words, we either either we all have the genius potential or no one does. Right, and that's basically the whole the genesis of all of my professional work for all these years has been, wow, if someone can do it, then anyone could do it. All we have to do is figure out what it is, and that's why the name of my first company was Learning Strategies Corporation, because there's a strategy for learning how to do anything. If it can be done, we just need to break it down and figure out what it is. And so that process of inquiry, that process of examination, that searching for the greater potential that is within you, in spite of the messages that you may have been raised with, is really the path of the spiritual aspirant and certainly what the whole personal growth movement has been about since the mid-70s. So now taking just a couple extra minutes here, I know we're going over, but I, I feel that I just love what we're talking about so much. I want to just go a couple more minutes on this. You you said at the beginning, Paul, you talked about the emerging future. To me, one of the greatest benefits of walking the talk, aligning with love, of course the miracles would say it's reaching the atonement, which is the the full realization that separation never occurred. We are one with the one. But also one of the most tangible benefits really is that this aligning with the divine in such a way that we can be in the full potential of every moment. Can you define a little more for us the emerging future and the really the motivation that there is in walking the talk is to align with this? Yes. You see, the... I like to think about <clears throat> being on a a pier that's going out into the ocean. You, know, you and I have walked on the Venice Pier. And right. if you go out to where the waves are breaking and look out mm-hmm. on both sides of the pier, as far as you can see, there are people in black suits sitting on <laughs> surfboards. Right. And what they're doing is they're looking to the horizon for an energy that's emerging. And that waveform that's coming towards them is a potential energy. And if they align themselves with it, paddle as fast as they can, and drop into the front face of that, that potential energy is turned into kinetic energy. And it propels them, giving them the ride that they're choosing to have. <coughs> Excuse me. So you don't... You can't predict the wave, and you can't predict how you're going to behave on the wave, and you can't control the wave. And so what you do is you dynamically steer. This process of dynamically steering is the process of developing the craft of capturing this emerging energy. Well, the future is always washing in to the reef called the now. There's always this chaotic edge of it and the universe is finding its expression in the now it's constantly expanding the waveforms are hitting us all the time and who you are here to express in this world the highest and best future self of you is already known by you 
You can actually make contact with it and ask, what is the next step I'm supposed to take? And it yeah. knows. It yeah. always knows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get so excited because it that is the thing that feels most real to me, is that, mm-hmm. that divine connection and leaving behind the idea that we we somehow that we can't attain to it. Well, we that really, there's, yeah, we don't. That, there's, that there's a limitation of any kind. Yes. Yeah. And so it goes back to it's you're you're riding the wave, but you're also surrendering any idea that you don't know how to ride the wave. Yeah. In fact, big wave surfers will tell you that they can have no thought. I mean, here's ten tons of water hanging over their head. A single thought. They're in a reef that's only about 18 inches under their surfboard. There's no surviving that. And so they cannot have a thought. They have to literally be one with that emerging energy. Well, that's what we're called to do. When we really get what it means to walk or talk, it's not to try to figure it out or try to control how your life goes it's to get in alignment with this energy which is expressing itself through you as you and say yes 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 and you know the truth of the matter is the more you walk your talk the more you align with that and you stop questioning and you stop needing everything to be laid out and explained to you and you just live in the trust and that was week two we did trust and faith Mm -hmm. When you align with that, then you you don't need to have everything explained. You really you can ride the wave. It feels more comfortable to ride the wave, and you know it's safer. You're less likely to get smashed when you do ride the wave, and you 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 start to get very familiar with what it feels like to live in that infinite possibility. Yes, I think you know if you think about. The more you trust it, the more you learn to trust it. Mm-hmm. It really is it. And it's like trusting love in a, in a personal relationship. You know, it, it, the, the first year of a lot of romantic relationships for many people is the hardest year, even though there's all that, you know, wonderful, yummy sexual stuff. I think a lot of that stuff happens in that first year just so we don't run away screaming. And so... <laughs> But in 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 a in a, a healthy relationship, you learn to let go and really trust the other person, and trust that they're being divinely guided. And love is the thing that you're both following, and you, you release the barriers. And and it's of course, miracles talks about that holy relationship as being very much akin to living in the total surrender of any idea of separation is you you feel that oneness experience with another human being and it helps you to comprehend and even desire the the total union and release completely release of separation yep beautifully said and after 34 years of marriage so far I have to say that it really is an ongoing learning process. It's uh, it's something that continually surprises and delights, never stops. Mm-hmm. The moment that either my wife or I get complacent about it is when trouble starts to show up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. It's true for everyone. So, Paul, we're we're coming to a close. I would like to invite you to tell everybody again how do do you have an email list? How can people get more of the the yumminess that you offer? Mm, thank you. Yes. If if you go to shealylearning.com, it's S C H E E L E SheelyLearning.com. That'll give you an opportunity to opt in, find out about the new things that are coming up for us, the products, the books, the ultimate you retreat that we host once a year in the fall. And um, I'd love to be able to connect with you on an ongoing basis. And I I have been uh, using Paul's paraliminals that he's talked about for years and years and years. I highly recommend them, and Paul has lots of programs all the time about tapping into our natural brilliance and genius, and you also do, you do on a regular basis um, free calls and things, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it's called Ask Your Inner Genius, and if you go to askyourinnergenius.com, you can find out more about that. Also on the website, Sheely Learning, there'll be information about that where you can sign on. We have that on the last Wednesday of every month, so oh, it's okay. a free call and you can participate by asking questions. Good deal. Yeah. And oh, I'm so grateful to you, Paul. This has been a wonderful conversation. I I always enjoy any conversation that we get to have. Uh, a lot of times you call me from the airport or on the road and we, we get to catch up. So it's been wonderful just to have this delicious conversation about walking the talk. I know that uh, other people are inspired. And the, you're giving a bonus to everybody who purchases the gold and platinum programs. Do you want to tell anybody, tell us about that a little bit? Nope. Okay. I don't because Cheryl put it together for you, but I'm sure it's nothing short of spectacular. Um, okay. Well, I know the details of it are on the uh, on the website, and uh, I I don't have it right in front of me, so I can't I can't explain it either. Okay. But uh, we'll, we'll I'll be um, I'm going to make a video about all the bonuses so people can understand what they oh, are. Good. Good, good, so good. right now, I'm going to invite everyone to place your hand on your heart again. And Paul, I I got this from Marcy Shymoff, who did the the last Living a Course in Miracles. She got it from Heart Math. That and uh, once she talked about placing the hand on the heart and tuning it within like this, she said that the Heart Math people explained that when you do that, you literally can boost your immune system for six hours. Just like getting angry or having a tantrum or being upset can depress the immune system for six hours. So when we pray in and pray out, when I pray, I realized I put my hand on my heart. I didn't even realize that it had this immune-boosting capability. I just naturally placed my hand on my heart. So we're doing that together right now, taking a breath of gratitude and consciously with that exhale surrendering any thought of separation or any idea that it's too hard to walk the talk. 
we're consciously invoking the higher Holy Spirit self, the knower who knows. So we don't have to figure out how to walk our talk. We consciously anchor into our willingness and we invoke divine grace to guide us and lead us in every moment. So we're actively releasing any idea that we don't know how or that it's too hard or that we're going to suffer or have to sacrifice in order to walk our talk. And we're consciously opening our mind to the emerging future, to the infinite possibility, to the open mind, the open heart, the open will, the perfect love that is our true identity. And we're so grateful right now to recognize that we are one with everyone. And so we get to take everyone with us in this healing right now. We're accepting a healing for ourselves. And we're sharing the benefits with everyone. So grateful and so thankful that we are indeed one, inextricably one, forever one. In grace and gratitude, we joyfully let it be. And so it is. Amen. Amen, amen. Hmm. So good. Thank you, Paul. My great pleasure. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be on this call with you. And thank you, everybody. I love you, and I'll be with you on the homework class in uh, just about uh, 12 hours from now. So I'll see you then. Good night, everyone. This is Jennifer Hadley again. I invite you to remember that your dedication to your life of love is the best gift that you can share with the world. Love is the only healer, and it's always available to you for the asking. Remember, too, that you cannot have that which you're unwilling to share. Share the love today. Love out loud and know that all boats rise on this holy tide of love. Thank you for joining us. Please go to jenniferhadley.com for more tools and practical loving support every day.